We can't really see and touch data. You know, the concept of an information system, it's it's sort of an ethereal concept. I can point to the cloud. I know where some of Amazon's data centers are, but I can't definitively say, yes, if that data center gets hit, it's going to have this dollar impact on my business. So helping to educate those founders, those, those business owners on what is important about information security, why even if they have a compliance requirement, checking all of the compliance boxes is not the end goal of this activity, that education component is really, really the most important thing I think I can do. Because once my contract ends, once I my ADD takes me on to the next you know, shiny object job that I'm gonna chase, if I've educated the people at that organization to think about security, to be security champions, that program will still be effective even once I leave. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my friend and colleague, Aaron Kraus. Aaron has been an InfoSec educator for more than 12 years, including teaching the CISSP exam prep course and providing technical editing for Wiley's official CISSP and CCSP books. He's held GRC and InfoSec leadership positions at Zaguro and Reciprocity. Aaron got his start in InfoSec in the federal sector and has since advised many different startups and SMBs on how to build an information security program from scratch. Some of Aaron's upcoming projects include authoring the Domain 5 Security Operations chapter of the upcoming CCSP CBK Reference Guide and starting a new role at Learning Tree as Dean of their Cybersecurity Curriculum. Aaron, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much, Caroline. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you so much for the opportunity. It is my pleasure. Aaron, you are a cybersecurity educator, and everything that I know about you tells me that you're extremely passionate, both about learning as well as about teaching. Can you tell me a little bit about how did you become a teacher? It was actually entirely by accident. It was one of those things that you kind of learned about yourself as you went along. As a kid, I was diagnosed with an attention disorder told that you know I needed to learn how to pay attention. Lesson didn't quite stick until I made it to college and a lot of the structure was kind of taken out of the equation. So I, I was given the opportunity to actually fail and sure enough, two semesters back to back, got a D in, in one of my classes and I realized I actually needed to take charge of that and to do that, I needed to learn how to learn. Okay, fine, took care of that, got through college made it out into the real world. And I kept having people tell me, you really have a way of explaining things. You have a way of taking information and not dumbing it down, but making it accessible, connecting it to previous knowledge that I might've had or using an analogy or a metaphor to help me understand a larger concept. And I realized, you know, they often tell you, be excited, find what you're passionate about. And sometimes it's that thing that, you know, you want to do that the moment you uh, you figure out what you want to be when you grow up, other times it's you realize these are the things that I'm good at. These are things I would do even if nobody pays me. And seeing those aha moments in class or, or virtually when people connect this crazy topic that we're talking about, you know, whether it's 
networking security, TLS handshakes, or the, the concepts of risk management and how you do asset valuation, seeing that light bulb moment, even if there wasn't a paycheck at the end of the, the week when I finished teaching, I would still be up there in front of the classroom. That's very cool. You know, Aaron, one of the things that I've come to learn about you that I think also influences the way you interact with others and the way that you teach is your international experience. I know that you studied abroad and you've also done so many different consulting and infosec projects around the world. It seems to me a lot in India and in Europe, um, as well as I understand you live in the United States. Can you tell me a little bit about how is it that throughout your career, you have found yourself living in all sorts of different places? I have the U.S. military to thank for that. Uh, my father was in the army, so we were, we were stationed in Germany. And I was also lucky, I think, the tying back to the learning experience, my parents both invested time in, in learning German while we were over there. So got an opportunity to actually get out and experience more than just a U.S. air base in another country, but a whole different way of life and a interacting in a language that I didn't speak. That's always been a, a huge part of what I find interesting. And in college, I made sure to find ways to, to study abroad. My experience, I think, really starts with a, an international business school where I was an exchange student for a full semester and seeing different approaches, different ideas, different perspectives, and learning how to do, I know we all have dreaded group work in, in schools, but learning how the different personality types and, and different approaches, even among European countries, was different. People who maybe only live 40, 40 miles apart, but have a completely different cultural context as they're approaching work, really got me thinking about that. And then luckily in my career, I've spent a great deal of time as an auditor gives you the opportunity to, again, see little snapshots, little slices of different companies, different regions, different industries. And it's given me an appreciation for diversity of viewpoints. There are things based on my background, my, my experiences, both cultural, academic, and, and also work-related, you know, solutions to problems that I might not even come up with or ideas for troubleshooting things, because I've never even seen something, I might not even think that's a place to start. So it really has been amazing to kind of learn some of those interactions. And, you know, some of them are just basic, like which cultures do you start with? Small anecdotes about yourself and, and talking about the weather for an extended period of time, whereas other cultures, you get right down to business. And if you try to transplant those experiences, you can be seen as, as rude or invasive if you cut the small talk short, you're, you're being curt. Uh, in other places, if you inquire after someone's personal life, that's a very personal and invasive question. So kind of navigating that, I just, I find it fascinating. And one of the things I use to really kick that off, and it's, it's served me great as a conversation starter all over the world, just asking people, what do you eat for breakfast? What is, what is culturally common or appropriate here? Because in, in my time growing up as a kid, in Germany, when we were on the airbase, we ate cereal, Pop-Tarts. When we went off the airbase, Germans eat what an American might consider lunch. There's, there's a bread roll, some meat and cheese. So just those fascinating little everyday differences and learning about them and appreciating them has been a huge part of my experience. Aaron, I love that. Aaron, what did you eat for breakfast today? Uh, today was actually some homemade jam. There's a strawberry farm nearby that is doing deliveries during quarantine. So 
I've been coming up with creative ways to use 10 pounds of strawberries each week. I'm looking for more if anyone has any. That is wonderful. I really like that. I think that is such a great way to start a conversation with someone and to begin to get to know something about another person that you that you might not know otherwise. And I find it's something everyone has an answer to. It's not technical. It doesn't revolve around anything specialized. You know, career conversations are obviously difficult to break into, but almost everybody eats and everybody has a favorite breakfast food. So fantastic. Erin, you have seen InfoSec at so many different types of organization, from startups to the federal sector. I know that you also have held information security positions at SaaS companies. Can you tell me a little bit about when you go in to advise a startup or an SMB, how do you approach that? What are some of the questions that you ask right up front? And how do you go about basically diving into a project that is likely to be fairly unique and different from anything else you've done? And I think you've hit on something very important, which is the the sheer uniqueness of security, of compliance, of, of security risk management across all of these organizations, because everyone's operations are structured a little differently. Obviously, there are variations among the technology stack. I like to start by finding out what it is that is motivating the person I'm engaging with to even think about security. In my experience, in the federal space, most of those engagements begin with some sort of legal mandate. So most of the executive branch is required to report to Congress, the the legislative branch, on their security. So there's a compliance framework that drives them in the commercial space depending on what industry you're in, there's a a patchwork of regulations or for many SaaS companies, as they start to grow up, as they begin to mature, sign on with bigger customers, bam, here come the compliance requirements, the audit, audit rights in contracts. So your business partners say thou shalt have a SOC 2 type 2 report to show to us every year. And that is how so many of the SaaS companies, especially out in the Bay Area, that's how they begin their their journey to infosec. So I I want to understand what's driving that because there are some common misconceptions, some common assumptions and you have to know where you're starting, what what the context is that you're coming into. There really is no one size fits all solution. In some cases, and I'm seeing very positive signs here based on on my professional network, I'm seeing CEOs, C-level execs founders, entrepreneurs who recognize that information security is going to be important. They recognize information has inherent value and they're building a company. And the whole goal is to generate value, you know, to to generate revenues, to in many cases, be able to retire early. Um, They can't do that if they have these major, major vulnerabilities. So information security hopefully is going to be at least somewhere on their their to-do list. Depending on the answer, there's also often going to be an education component. And this is why in all of the stuff that I do and all of the skills that I have, I really pull education up to the top because I find that in many cases, those, those small business owners don't understand the importance. They, they know there's this thing about information security. They've heard about cybersecurity. They've read about hacks and data breaches, but they're not really sure what it means to them. 
Uh, and I think this comes down to a fundamental problem of we have millions of years of evolution driving the need to protect basic necessities, food, shelter. For some reason, shiny objects made it into our DNA at some point. <laughs> we can't really see and touch data. You know, the concept of an information system, it's it's sort of an ephemeral, ethereal concept. I can point to the cloud. You know, I, I know where some of Amazon's data centers are, but I can't definitively say, yes, if that data center gets hit, it's going to have this dollar impact on my business. So helping helping to educate those founders, those those business owners on what is important about information security, why, even if they have a compliance requirement, checking all of the compliance boxes is not the end goal of this activity, that that education component is really, really the most important thing I think I can do. Because once my contract ends, once I my ADD takes me on to the next you know, shiny object job that I'm going to chase, if I've educated the people at that organization to think about security to be security champions that program will still be effective even once i leave and and those people will be empowered to protect their own organization without constantly having to pull in more contractors uh, more more security staff because we know there's a, a shortage in security staff so getting those people self-sufficient helping helping them recognize the value and again seeing those educational light bulbs go off that's that's really my process if you will very cool. You know, Aaron, it occurs to me that one of the things that you actually enjoy about InfoSec is sort of all of these different unknowns. Um, you began your education at the College of William and Mary with a concentration in accounting, uh, and you prepared to sit for the CPA exam, and you decided maybe that wasn't really for you. And I am not a finance expert, so there's a big possibility that I may be framing this incorrectly, but it seems to me that those are two super different things. On one hand, you've got accounting something that as a society, we sort of largely have figured out and we have really mature and sophisticated models for risk management. And then on the other side, we have cybersecurity. You know, digital value is transforming every day. Um, you and I, during our careers, have been witness to a major shift from on-premise to the cloud. And it seems to me that that actually really suits you. I think it all comes back to what I consider to be a terminal case of not knowing what I want to be when I grow up. I think there are just so many interesting things to learn and, and to experience. I mean, when I tell the story about asking people what they eat for breakfast, some folks are like, that's the most inane detail. Why would you care about that? And I just, I find it inherently fascinating and, and indeed all new opportunities. Um, as you mentioned, yeah, from my, the beginning of my career with on-prem architecture, trying to figure out how to audit that to moving things into the cloud. And now this sort of new frontier of totally blowing up everything, you know, serverless and, and microservices architecture, which does away with so many of the control surfaces we used to have for, for addressing risk. In terms of my academic background, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the year that I graduated, they implemented a new requirement in order to become a CPA, you had to do an extra year of credits. I wasn't 100% committed to the idea of being a CPA. 
I've never even balanced a checkbook. I'm not really that great with math. So I figured I'd get out, see what was out there, maybe, maybe find something interesting. 15 years later, I haven't like officially declared that I'm not going back to school for a CPA, but I think the decision's been made at this point. <laughs> it's not like you have to like sign a letter saying, oh yes, no, no, thank you. I'd like to cancel my subscription. <laughs> I think the unifying element, and this is only clear in retrospect, was the ability or the, the focus in my academic program on auditing. So when I was in college, it was after the, the major waves of corporate scandals, uh, to your point about risk management, you know, evidently we hadn't quite figured it out. Enron was able to successfully inflate profits and hide massive losses. And companies like Global Crossing and WorldCom had supposedly paid for infrastructure and were recognizing it as an asset without actually having done it. So, you know, we focused a lot on auditing. We focused on that core idea of taking a set of evidence, comparing it against an objective standard and determining if another artifact, in this case, financial statements, actually actually matched all of that. And I ended up in process auditing, doing engineering, uh, supporting an engineering organization, and then had the opportunity, luckily through a consulting firm, to leverage that into information security auditing. So again, looking at a set of security controls, artifacts, things like access review forms, comparing it against the requirements as documented in the NIST framework and figuring out if, yes, the system was properly secured. Very box checking activity, very kind of dull and boring, but something with a lot of opportunities to learn and, and see different industries. So that kept me interested for a while. But as always, my inherent need to understand how things work, to, to dig a little bit deeper, to ask why until I either know the answer or the person I'm talking to says, get out of my face, I'm, I'm tired of answering. I can kind of came to realize this idea of security risk management, which really underpins that compliance framework. We're not just checking boxes because in the case of the clients I was supporting there, Congress told us we have to, but we're trying to reduce the threat and vulnerability picture, the, the risk picture for these applications. We're trying to safeguard the data of U.S. citizens or internal data for government organizations, or as I continued my career for a financial services organization, the account information that, that the bank held on behalf of its customers. So we're really doing a, a vital protection activity there. I know it's a very long answer, but my career path has not necessarily been totally linear. So connecting all those dots in, uh, in retrospect kind of involves doing a couple of, couple of zigs and zags. I love it. And I appreciate you sharing that level of detail with us. I find you to be quite eloquent. Erin, I expect that many of the listeners of this podcast work in InfoSec at startups and at SMBs. And many more work in cloud-based SaaS environments. I wonder if there are any case studies or any takeaways or lessons learned that you'd like to share with our listeners on those topics, given that those are some of the areas in which you have quite a lot of experience. Yeah, I think the one most important overarching lesson, if you are working in the field of InfoSec, regardless of industry, regardless of company size, expect the unexpected. Uh, this will not be a nine to five solid same job day after day and until you retire. I've done everything from 
squashing AppSec vulnerabilities to, you know, being the only person who could read the German manual from a, a Swiss coffee machine that somebody decided to bring into the office. So I was the only one who could figure out how to set it up. And the reason we were concerned with setting it up is because it gave you the ability to order order supplies online. So it needed to be connected to the Wi-Fi. And I had to say, absolutely not. You're not connecting anything to my Wi-Fi network without me knowing what it is and what what I can do to secure it or what compensating controls I need to put in place. You know, that thing's going on a separate guest network. I think one of the biggest issues, and particularly for startups, is this constant need to balance creating enough value as an organization to be an ongoing concern to you know generate enough revenue to continue expanding the business, to continue paying employees with balancing the overhead needed to maintain that. So security is, is usually an overhead function. One great example that, that I stumbled into, most of us are using some sort of cloud-based collaboration suite. You know, they're the big ones. I think now the official name is Microsoft 365. They, they've rebranded uh, G Suite. Many of these tools offer enterprise level capabilities for drastically cheaper than, than what we would expect to pay. If I were building an exchange server, providing email, definitely not paying $5 per user per month for, for that to license it. At one organization, almost immediately after we sent out a press release announcing that we had closed round of funding, like in internet time, you know, just a couple of hours, we got hit by a targeted spear phishing campaign, someone pretending to be the CEO asking people in the organization for some details of, of financial systems, you know, typical social engineering. There was a pretext, there was a high criticality deadline, the CEO quote unquote, was away from his computer, unable to respond to this and, and needed some help. That flexibility of startups, again, kind of worked against us. The fact that one day I'm working in the AWS console and the next day I'm trying to translate Swiss German so I can hook up a coffee machine. You know, you just, you get used to taking things as they come at you. And we did have a couple of people say, I don't actually have those things. I'm sorry. They, they responded to the email, but Luckily, a couple of folks reported it to me immediately. They said, this looks fishy. It doesn't look like the kind of thing that the CEO would do. I discovered the hard way that these online collaboration tools don't have the full feature set from a security standpoint. So my typical anti-phishing incident response procedure is, okay, you get this reported, you go into Exchange, you pull that message from everyone's inboxes. There's no such function in Google Apps for Business or, or G Suite, when you're using Gmail to power your company's inbox, you know, some of your anti-phishing measures, some of your corrective controls just don't exist there. So in that case, pushed us to find uh, an external service, an additional monthly licensing fee per mailbox so that we had some security controls in place. So again, that was an operational decision that, that was made. The business said, we need email, we need collaboration. We don't have a whole lot of revenue, so in that case, cost won the day. But as always, we're balancing cost with the ability to respond to risk, the ability to manage risk. Cool. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think that is absolutely the situation that I've observed in my um, experience, you know, working with startups and SMBs. Um, and I think that's I think that's a really good case study to share with folks. Erin, I'm also curious to know what your thoughts are with regards to the information security talent shortage. From my perspective, you're sort of at the forefront 
of helping the industry to create a pipeline by teaching folks about security. What are your thoughts on the future of our industry? There's a lot that we need to do, and I think there are some critical critical decision makers who who need to figure out how they want to approach this problem. Uh, I see a lot of a lot of technology thrown at information security and cybersecurity problems, but I think it's ultimately human problems that we're trying to solve. And I think that we need to definitely not replace our technology solutions, but complement them with appropriate human solutions. You hit the nail on the head. I see some of my teaching activities as a way to get more more qualified people, uh, but I think the the most recent ISC squared workforce study, it's you know up to a projected four million four million person shortfall. The human solution that I think we need to to get to is ultimately empowering everyone to be cyber aware, to to be an infosec champion, to think about the security risks they are encountering on a daily basis. Uh, you know, hopefully, when most of us get in our cars, we think about checking our mirrors, we think about putting on our seatbelts to mitigate risks. I don't know that we put the same level of rigor into opening up an email or sending out data, sharing a document in in a collaboration service. And what's really brought me to this, another case study, another kind of cloud-based experience was essentially a game of AppSec whack-a-mole that I was playing. You know, if it wasn't one thing this week, unauthenticated API calls, it was a lack of appropriate network controls, or the next week we discovered that the microservices architecture we had built totally reduced our ability to, or totally eliminated our ability to shape network traffic and therefore use that as a means of of access control. And I realized I was just on a treadmill of trying to solve these problems and I couldn't sit with each developer every single day, help them think through the security impacts of the architecture and coding decisions that they were making. But what I could do was empower them with the knowledge they needed to make those decisions themselves, to recognize when they were completely out of their depth and then that's when they would pull me in and hopefully you know, begin to reduce the, the burden of just unexpected reactive kind of security work that I was doing. And as I began to mull over that idea, I was like, okay, developers, yeah, code powers our our SaaS platform. They're a critical part of the organization. But then I think about everyone who has access to email. They are a potential part of the attack surface if they get a phishing message or anybody who has a corporate laptop that they take home and put on a network with a bunch of cheap IoT devices that they've purchased and never bothered to protect or isolate on a separate network segment. How can I get all of them on board as well? Because again, I I can't follow them home. I can't do an audit of everyone's home networks when we're working from home or follow them to every coffee shop and say, yes, it's okay for you to connect here and and use the VPN or this one's just too risky. I would suggest working offline. And this again, kind of ties into my education experience. It's a matter of making sure that we're modulating that message making sure we're giving people the right information, not overloading them with technical details, but giving them a a sense of awareness and and if not a curiosity, at least a a basic, a baseline set of facts that they can compare things against. And I think this will also help us solve another problem in the industry, which is a kind of a lack of diversity and inclusion. And uh, I I don't ascribe malicious motives to it. I just, I think, 
it can be very difficult if you don't see representation and if you don't feel like people are speaking your language. Uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of folks and said, have you ever considered a career in InfoSec? No, that's only for technical people. That's only for CS majors. Demonstrably not. I'm an accounting major. I've never, never actually done any accounting activity and I've worked in InfoSec for 15 years. I think some of the smartest people I know here have varied backgrounds. Many of the, the people who have been guests on this podcast have completely non-technical backgrounds and, and got here because they had some complementary set of skills. So to answer the, the basic question, how do we address that shortage? Obviously, training, training and awareness, formal education, getting people to be infosec practitioners, uh, pardon me, professionals, but then also a broader awareness targeted at everyone and, and efforts at diversity inclusion to create infosec practitioners, people who know enough to, to act responsibly, who know enough to kind of take charge of the work that they're doing, and also know when to bring in the professionals when, when things get a little too, too difficult or too complicated to handle. Very cool. Aaron, you had told me about a proud moment that you've had getting a group of retired baby boomers to sign up for a new app. Can you share that story with our listeners? Yeah, I think it's my my ultimate ultimate fun story of creating security champions. So I'm a I'm a late millennial. I'm kind of there on the cusp. I, I still remember when people had rotary phones, but not quite the digital native era. So when I visit the the group of retired family baby boomers, of course the phones all come out on the table. An occasional iPad will appear out of a purse and everybody's got tech support issues and questions. And one particular question related to this community that everyone was living in was for an app that provided some coupon and, and shopping benefits. And the first proud moment was the fact that somebody even thought to ask if my opinion, or to ask for my opinion on this app. Was it safe? Was it secure? Was it a privacy nightmare that was going to steal all of their contacts and do who knows what else? So I checked out the app, good to go, viable business model, acceptable trade-offs. And I said, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. So everybody around the table starts downloading and I, I get stuck dealing with a side issue on a, a different device, but I heard little snippets of conversation that just warmed my heart. And, you know, in, in risk management, sometimes we're just worst case scenario thinkers and it's very easy to get, get really pessimistic, but this, this raised my optimism level. I heard one person say, don't forget to use your shopping email. I had help them to create email aliases specifically for shopping, low value activities, kind of separating out some of the, some of the junk from their inboxes as an anti-phishing, as an anti-fraud and uh, anti-malicious scheme measure. And then a little bit later, and this was kind of the bless their hearts moment, I heard somebody say, don't forget to use a case sensitive password. <laughs> and I know it was wrong. But the fact that password hygiene was even a part of their consideration, even, even the fact that they were thinking about not reusing passwords, about creating strong passwords, that, that's what gives me hope. Again, that you know, the skills shortage, as an InfoSec professional, I can't be everywhere at once. I, I need to rely on a team of people. It's, it's really, we're all in this together. And so watching that, that table full of, of baby boomers practicing good cyber hygiene, practicing good password management, just, it gave me hope that we can actually solve these problems. That is so cool. 
what a heartwarming story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Erin, the last question I have for you today is actually about learning in general. So at the time of recording this podcast, we're in a super weird time. We're in the middle of a pandemic um, and learning, traditional learning, I think as we know it is being really examined and questioned uh, as folks figure out how are we going to do learning moving forward? How are we gonna do it safely? How are we gonna do it effectively? And I know that this is something that you think about. Uh, when I spoke with you last week, you had just completed nine hours of teaching a boot camp, and you had asked me if your voice sounded okay, and it did. And I was really impressed. Uh, I may have asked you what what brand of cough drops you use <laughs> to be able to to keep up your voice for that many hours on end. But I am seriously curious to know, moving forward, what are some of your thoughts on learning? and how everyone in the world is going to be doing that. How do you see the learning industry changing? I think we're finally seeing the embrace of totally virtual learning. And, and I think we finally have some of the tools that we need to support that. Uh, I know many of us are, are brand new at the, the video conferencing game. I've been a full-time work from home remote employee for the last five years. So setting up a meeting without a Zoom link or without a Teams uh, Teams meeting link feels weird to me, but I know that coworkers, colleagues who are still office based, that idea of being virtual is difficult. And you know, I think we've all seen the adjustment period. What do you do when there's a spouse in the background who also has to take a conference call, or there's a kid who just flushed their sibling's toy down the toilet, and you know, you have to deal with that in the background. We're we're kind of learning how to blend life and work a little bit more, and that's one of the necessities when we we do things remotely. I think there are also some very interesting opportunities to start breaking learning down into more digestible pieces. And I always try to make sure when I'm conveying knowledge that I'm bringing it as close as possible to the point in time during which people will use it. In, in learning, we talk about modalities. Some people do better with an audio message. They do better listening to people talking. Other people are visual learners. Some people are tactile or, or kinesthetic learners. We need to be hands-on, we need to do things. But regardless of your strongest modality, blending them together is the best way to build skills, to build knowledge, hearing something, and then immediately getting a chance to apply it. And that's why oftentimes we have exercises. You do a, a module of training, you learn some some concepts, you go and immediately apply that to a real world or, or simulated environment. And I think we're seeing some interesting possibilities opening up with maybe on-demand learning capabilities where I don't have to find a week to go and sit in training, but when I encounter a particular issue or maybe I do one, one domain of knowledge a week, that training is available to me on-demand when I need it, where I need it. I think we've seen the rise of apps as well. I, I have some experience with a language learning app. In my travels back in the days before, as you've called it, super weird was the, the norm when we were allowed to travel. I was able to learn a new language sitting in an airport and sitting on an airplane. I was able to hop on, a, hop on Wi-Fi on a completely different continent, load up all of the lessons and continue that when I went out into 
a nature preserve to to observe wildlife. So I think we're gaining that cultural acceptance and also gaining the skills that we need to make that effective. And I always tell people, you know, in risk management, again, we're always, what's the worst that could happen? But deep down at my core, I'm an optimist. And I think from a training perspective, silver lining of, of quarantine and, and shelter in place is people are understanding the power of being virtual, the opportunities that it, it delivers and the advantage for learning is our ability to deliver training when and where people need it and hopefully bring it closer to that point of being useful. Um, we're talking about network security, for example. Right before you go and, and do your annual network security audit, review a module on all of the important points of firewall configuration and then actually immediately go and apply it. Very cool. Aaron, thank you so much. It has been so much fun getting to know you and hearing your story. I appreciate your generosity in sharing it with our listeners. It's been my pleasure. And Caroline, in, in reciprocity, I'd like to say thank you for creating this amazing community of professionals and a, a community where we can share and learn about each other and a more open environment, not necessarily just work-related, but all these fascinating details that we've all got in our lives. So thank you so much for creating that. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io, a pen testing as a service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.